Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. And so as we start out and as we open up God's word this morning, I want to I want to start with with a question. And I want you to just consider for a minute why you're here. Like why you're here. And and, and not and not necessarily here this morning. I mean, you know there's time changes and all those things that go into that, but, but why, you're here, why you're even here in Missoula, why you're here in western Montana. I mean, I, I, I know why I'm here, right? Actually, my kids, as, as I was leaving the house over the weekend, my, on, on Friday, my kids asked me, right? Like, wait, why are you going to Montana? You know? And I didn't say, like, I'm going hunting, Right? I didn't say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going hiking. I didn't say because, you know, I, I, I need to see a hill that's bigger than, you know, 100 feet, right? Like, I, 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 there was clarity as to why I was going to be here. I was coming to spend some time with your community group leaders. I was preparing to preach the word this morning. I got to tell them that I was coming here to share the word of God with you. And then I, I, I'm going back. It's one less Californian you have to worry about. Don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm going back. So you, you don't have to hold it against me. So I, but I know why I'm here. And I think we all have stories that we tell ourselves, even stories we tell others about why we're here. I, I have a story about why I live in Los Angeles. Right? We have ideas about why we live where we live, why we invest our lives where we invest them. And, and as we ask those questions as to why we're here, why we are where we are, I think sometimes the, the most common stories we tell ourselves, the most common stories we tell others, might actually neglect the most overarching story of why the God of the universe in his beautiful sovereign direction and planning, has by, in his perfect wisdom, directed us here. Because I think there's a oftentimes deeper reason, an eternal reason, that we are where we are, that you are here. And it's that deeper eternal reason I wanna explore today as we open up God's word together. As we read, this is a, a, a passage about Jesus talking with his disciples after the resurrection. And in this passage, we, we, we get some instructions, we get some encouragement, we get, in, in a sense, a commission for both Jesus' immediate disciples and really subsequently for all of the disciples that would come to be disciples because of him. And, and in this commission, this actually isn't the, the most famous great commission, right? You, when you think of the great commission, you probably think of Matthew 28, if you've been around church for very long, where, where Jesus sends his disciples out. But here he gives them actually a very similar instruction, a very similar encouragement, but with kind of a, a slightly different angle. And it's a slightly different angle I want to look at and explore together this morning. There's a lot we could focus on in this passage, but today what, what I want to do is I want to zoom in on the actual words of Jesus. 
I want to think of this kind of like a, a red letter sermon, right? In, in, in some of your Bibles, the, the, when Jesus is actually speaking, the, the words are in, in red. And, and that's, I want to zoom in on the actual words of Jesus here. And I think when we focus in on the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples on this night, there's three important aspects of really God's welcome. God's welcome to his people that we, that we see and that frame our, this passage and I think our, our understanding of it this morning. And, and the first we're going to look at is, is we see a picture of God's welcome to us. So we, we see a picture of God's welcome to us. The second, we, we, we see a, a picture of God's welcome extended through us. And finally, we, we see a picture of God's welcome inhabiting in us. So we're going to look at God's welcome to us. God's welcome through us and God's welcome in us. And the first thing we hear from Jesus after he miraculously appears in this house where a number, a number of his disciples are hiding together, he, he's resurrected from the dead, he somehow miraculously, the, the door's locked and he shows up in the room, you're gonna talk about like a surprise guest, like all of a sudden he's there and Jesus shows up in their midst and he says to the disciples, actually his his disciples and a few other of his followers that are all gathered there, he says to them, peace be with you. And I think we could easily downplay the significance of this phrase. It's not an uncommon greeting. And in fact, it's a pretty standard greeting, a standard, pretty standard Hebrew greeting. Shalom, peace, peace be with you. It's almost like when you open the door to somebody who's at your front door and you open the door and you say, Welcome. Right? It, welcome means something. It, it has meaning behind it, but saying it can almost feel dismissive. You know, welcome, shalom, peace be with you. But it's Jesus' next action combined with the context of this moment that brings a different kind of weight and significance to these words. Just for a second, think about what the disciples had just been through. They were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was arrested. When the Messiah, the King, the King of the Jews who they had given up everything to follow for years had been arrested by Rome, dragged away, and beaten. They'd heard or seen that the moments when he was beaten and, and, and crucified. They, they'd seen it probably in a lot of ways kind of from corners, hiding a bit. And, and, in, this, and in this moment, they, they had, if you think about how they reacted, when Jesus was arrested, they didn't go get a band of followers. They didn't go rally the people who, who had laid down palm fronds on Palm Sunday just a week earlier. They didn't say the Messiah's been taken. Let's go get him. Let's free him. They ran. They hid. They had abandoned Jesus. At the most at the most climactic moment of his life and ministry. When confronted, Peter, the one on which the church was to be built, 
denied him. Three times. Over and over. At, at, he denied him out of fear from a little girl who said, don't you know him? No. Not only am I not going to stand up for him, I'm going to deny even knowing him. I have nothing to do with that man. They didn't organize a rebellion. They didn't hatch a scheme to free him. They hid. And three days later, after the crucifixion, after the death, they were still hiding. They were locked inside a house, paralyzed with fear. They weren't out defending his reputation. They, they weren't out spreading his message because he wasn't there to do it anymore. They were locked inside a room, cowering. And Jesus shows up in the room. What would you expect him to say? Right? If he's there after everything that we've been through, after everything that, that they've been through, after everything that, that, that they had not done for him, and the resurrected Jesus is standing in the room, they may have expected condemnation or rebuke or anger. At the very least, they would have expected him to say, I'm disappointed. But instead, they received his pronouncement of peace. The Jesus who had been forsaken even by them came to them and said, peace be with you. And if you think I might be reading too much into this simple little greeting, you're like, that's a lot for like a couple of words. It's driven home by the fact that he repeats it. He doesn't just say it once. After greeting his cowering disciples, Jesus shows them, he says, peace be with you, and then he shows them the wounds. He shows them that it is truly him, the resurrected, crucified one. And then after showing them his wounds, he says to them again, almost to say, no, really, peace be with you. When we think of our relationship with God, when we think of the thought of coming into God's presence, I'm afraid that we don't oftentimes think of ourselves as his children, as members of his family. I think oftentimes if, if we were to think to come into the presence of God, we feel a bit like guests in his house. And when you're a guest in someone's house, you, you're kind of on your best behavior. Because you're you know they've told you you're welcome. But, but you're not quite sure how welcome you are. <laughs> right? Like, I know I'm welcome and I'm comfortable in my own house, but I'm not quite sure how welcome I am to be that comfortable when I'm in someone else's house. Right? And, and a brief introductory welcome when you walk in the door, like, doesn't solve that. Right? You're like, okay, I hear that, I'm glad, I'm thankful, I'm welcome, I'm just not quite sure 
how. But what if you're, you show up into someone's house? What if you are a guest in someone's home and you show up at the door to the, and your host is someone who the last time you'd seen each other, you'd abandon them in their time of need. The last time you'd seen each other, you had forsaken them. Welcome probably wouldn't make you feel that welcome. <laughs> like, well, the, thanks. But, but what about what happened? The first welcome may leave some questions, but it's the second welcome that's unmistakable. Because while Jesus' first statement of peace be with you may not assuage his disciples' fears, the second most assuredly did. Jesus wanted his disciples to know, and in recording it, the apostle John wants us to know that there is nothing you can do that will put you beyond the reach of the grace, the peace, the welcome of Jesus the Savior. In the very next chapter of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus personalize this exact same point. He personalizes it to even to Peter, to Peter himself, who had rejected him and forsaken him explicitly three times. Peter can't say, oh, we were just in the house waiting. We were about to go out. Right? No, no. He had explicitly rejected him. And in a loving, gentle act of redemption, Jesus mirrors Peter's three denials by asking him three times, do you love me? Each time, Peter's given the opportunity to clearly and unreservedly declare his love for his Savior to his face, and an opportunity he probably never imagined he would ever have again. The final time, Peter, Peter replies emphatically, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And in light of this act of reconciliation, in light of Peter experiencing firsthand the welcome of the Savior we've been talking about, Jesus ends his conversation with Peter where their relationship began in the first place. The resurrected one saying to Peter, then follow me. Know that you have been completely welcomed in. So follow me. And here we see the connection between the welcome that God extends to us, the welcome that God extends to his disciples and, and, and ultimately the welcome that he extends to us through Christ and the lives of welcome he is calling us to live in this world. See, the first aspect of God's welcome we see is God's welcome to us, but then we see the introduction of this new, this new kind of welcome, this new manifestation of welcome, and it's God's welcome being extended to the world through us. Immediately after Jesus' second assertion of peace be with you, and before this, actually, just, just, let's just note, I, I love sometimes how not all power and, and, and meaning gets always like carried along in the, in the English. In the, when he says that the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord, glad's a weird word, isn't it? 
Like, think about what they were experiencing in that moment. I mean, it, it's probably the, 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 the right translation, but I think that it doesn't quite carry the experience of what was happening in this room. They were overwhelmed by his welcome and now ready to hear what he has for them. And immediately after Je- Jesus' second assertion of peace be with you, he follows up with this pronouncement. As the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. I am sending you as the Father sent me to welcome people into our family. I am now sending you to welcome others into our family. Thinking back to our, our, our house guest who, who walks in the door. It, it, it's as though the, the, the host cries out, welcome. And maybe he cries out, welcome from the other room. But then he walks up and there's a general welcome, but then there's a personal one. And he grabs them by the shoulders and he says, no, you truly are welcome here. And embraces him. And and experiences the, 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 the beauty and the joy of having been truly welcomed in. And then it's as if he pulls back and says, now, I have a job for you tonight. There's more people coming. I can't welcome them all myself. Will you help me? Will you welcome them in with me? But as as I've said before, the the house guest analogy is problematic. It it falls apart eventually, right? It, It doesn't, like all analogies do. Because I think all too often we feel like guests in God's house. Maybe we're even welcomed in guests, but God's word tells us we aren't guests. We aren't even necessarily just welcomed in guests into his household. We are his children. It's not just that we've been welcomed into it. We have been welcomed into his house, but now it is our house. Which again is is where the spiritual concept of adoption is so helpful, so powerful. Jesus is declaring to us that just as God the Father sent God the Son into the world to fulfill a specific purpose and welcome his children into his family, God the Son is now sending us into the world to fulfill a specific purpose as his children, as his family. It's incredible that God wants to extend his welcome through us. But, but doesn't it just make sense? I mean, if we are his family, right? If we are his family, then that's how it would work. Right? When, when Lara, my, my wife, gave birth to each of our children, she wasn't the only one to welcome that child into our family and say, I'm glad you're welcoming them into our family. I've got a video game to play. No, no, when she welcomes a child into our family, I was there to welcome her. We had a waiting room full of, 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 of parents and, and uncles and aunts and all there waiting to welcome them into the family. Why? Because we're family. That's what we're here to do. And when we brought a, a child into, into our home and, and to meet their siblings, their siblings were a part of that welcome. Right? They, they weren't disinterested. As soon as the, the baby was carried in the door, they wanted to hold, they wanted to see, they wanted to extend the welcome because we're, they're, they're being welcomed by, not by an, one individual, but by the family. And every member of the family was called to welcome this new child, the sibling, in ways that are, that are intentional, that are sacrificial, that are lavish because we're a family. 
I, I see this in a smaller way when my kids welcome other kids into our home. I, I love to watch my kids welcome other kids into our home. See, when a child enters my house, I could, as the father, as the husband, I could welcome a six or seven-year-old into my house. I'm not sure how welcome they'd feel. That's the problem, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a tall guy, right? Even if I get down below, it's a little bit weird. You know, a, six, a six-year-old you know, comes into the house, and I'm like, hey, I want you to know you're welcome here. Whatever, you can play with toys, you can run around. Like, I'm so excited that you're here, and I'm just so welcome. And they're like, this guy's weird, <laughs> right? Would that be weird? That'd be weird, right? But it's different when another kid meets you at the door, right? When another kid meets you at the door and says, you know what, my dad, he's old, he's big, but I've got Legos. <laughs> Let's go see the Legos, right? I've got I've got dolls. Let's go see the dolls, right? Let's, let's, and they grab them by the hand and they pull them into the house. And, they, and I, I love seeing them experience the welcome extended from one kid to another kid because they know that they're a part of the family. They know it's their house. They know it's their room. And so they can welcome people into their room. They know it's their toys. And they can welcome them into their toys. There is no doubt in their mind that this is their house. Even though they don't pay the mortgage. Like, my kids think it's their house. They haven't paid a single bill their entire lives. I hear from my teenage daughter that that is her room. I'm like, where's the rent? Like, what do you mean your room? My kids legally own nothing in that place. But in their hearts and minds, there is no question. That is their home. That is where they belong. It is theirs. And if for them to welcome someone in there, they know that they have all the freedom in the world to welcome others into their place because of who their parents are, because of their parents' ownership of the home. On the flip side, this is why unreciprocating entitlement is my pet peeve in my home. <laughs> Right? I love seeing my kids take what they've been given and share it with others. I love to see my kids take the privilege of being a part of our family and welcome others in. I love to see my kids affirm and reaffirm one another's place in our family to each other. But nothing drives me nuts. Like when they take those things they've been given and act with a sense of superiority and selfishness with them. <laughs> They're like, no, 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 that's mine. I'm like, hold up. Again, no bills, no mortgage. Like, and you're gonna, I gave, I gave that to you three weeks ago. What do you mean you can't share it with anybody? Right, when they ignore kids who feel uncomfortable in our house because they just wanna play by themselves. 
Oh, it drives me nuts. When they refuse to share out of some misguided notion that what makes spe- stuff special is when no one else touches it. It drives me nuts. Even worse, when they don't feel like they can welcome others because they're insecure about their own place in the family. But we're all tempted to fall into these same patterns of thinking, aren't we? Like when when God welcomes us into his family, when he calls us to welcome others, it seems like living that out should be a no-brainer. On paper, it it all pencils, right? It, It makes complete sense. So why don't we constantly live our lives with this welcoming orientation? I think having experienced the welcome of God, what keeps us from living lives that are intentionally and sacrificially and just lavishly welcoming to others? I think, unfortunately, just like my kids, our fallen hearts oftentimes fall into the traps of selfishness and self-pity. We lose sight of the, the magnitude of the welcome we've received We think that what we've been given, that the person who's given it to us might be stingy. And so we have to cling to what we have, lest that's it. We conveniently forget that extending God's welcome is actually one of the central purposes of our lives. But it's into this predicament that God provides us a a supernatural solution. See, as frustrating as it might be, every parent knows that it takes a supernatural act of God for kids to step away from their selfishness. It doesn't come naturally. It takes a supernatural act of God for kids to step away from their entitled instincts and to show genuine compassion and empathy and welcome. We can put all the parenting practices we want into place, but only the transformation of the heart that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling work of the Spirit can truly transform a selfish child's heart. It's the only thing. And that's true about adults too. The grace of Jesus Christ and the indwelling Spirit and dwelling nature of his spirit are the only things that can fundamentally change the selfishness that is so captivating to our souls. Which is why it is so encouraging that not only has God extended his welcome to us, And not only has he called us to extend his welcome to the world through us, but that God has supernaturally chosen and designed to manifest his welcome in us. Think about Jesus and these disciples. Jesus shows up. Shows up in this locked room. Peace be with you. Shows them intimately his hands and his feet, the crucified, tells them, no, truly, peace be with you. 
It's like he draws them close and says, you are welcome, and then reveals to them his purpose for them and his purpose for us and says, just as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then, and this is so fascinating, he breathes on them. He breathes on them and tells them, receive the Holy Spirit. He then closes it up, says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them, and if you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There's so much here, we don't, we don't have time to dive into completely, but I wanna, I wanna explain this just real quickly. First of all, Jesus breathes on them, and, and I mean, think about the imagery going on here, right? Just as God breathed life into Adam, The God of the universe, the creator of the universe is breathing into his creation again. Breathing new life. Breathing recreation. Bringing to life that which was dead by his breath. And then he says he gives them the power to forgive sins. And when he gives them the power to forgive sins, he is obviously not delegating the authority of determining who can be forgiven and who can't to them. As we read elsewhere in scripture, only God can forgive sins. But God the Spirit is coming to dwell in their souls. God himself is coming to dwell in their souls so that they, so that we might be the tangible, tangible embodiment of his presence here on earth so that we might deliver his message and to be the, the, the mouthpiece of his message that forgiveness only can come through faith in Jesus Christ, to deliver the message and be the mouthpiece that declares that apart from Christ, you cannot be forgiven. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no forgiveness. We stand condemned and we need him. And so he gives them the the authority to declare, to be his mouthpiece because God himself has come to dwell in them and has come to dwell in us so that we might be his representatives on earth. The, the picture I, I couldn't get out of my head as I was, I was thinking about this, thinking about the, the, the picture of the disciples here as God's representatives, as his, the ones who have God himself dwelling inside of them. Um, it's, it, it's the image, and it, it's an imperfect analogy, but it, it's the image of a, a company town Right, so a, a company town was a widespread practice about 100 years ago. Some of you may be familiar with it. Some of you younger, you, you might not be. But at their peak, there were more than 2,500 company towns in the United States. Actually, up to almost 3% of the entire population of the United States at one point lived in company towns. Like it was a very widespread practice. And a company town was a place where essentially everything, the stores, the houses, the businesses, the restaurants, everything was owned by the town's employer. Right? It was usually a factory, a mill of some kind. Um, now, as you can imagine, this often, oftentimes didn't work out great for the workers. Right? It's not hard to imagine what could go wrong when the same company that employs you sells you your groceries. Right, or what could go wrong when, when the same company that employs you also owns your house and owns the land that you built your church on? Right? Things can go sideways. 
Um, but there were also some good examples along the way. Um, actually, I just realized just down the street here, Bonner was a company town, right? Uh, and until 2007. I mean, recently. In California, one of, one of the kind of best examples of a, a company town was in a town called Scotia, California, in Northern California. And Scotia was an active company town owned by, the, by Pacific Lumber for almost 100 years, and from 1890 until 1985. And for that entire time, Pacific Lumber owned and operated, was owned and operated by one family. So, you know, thing, things particularly got sideways as things sold and things like that. But it was owned by one family for the majority of that time by the Simon Murphy family. And in general, the, the Murphy family seemed to treat their employees or citizens of the town relatively well. Rent was affordable. Things were maintained. Generations of workers raised their families in Scotia. And, and it, it actually earned a reputation as a desirable place to, to live and work. Now, I... I want you to imagine what it'd be like to live in a company town like that. I want you to imagine what it'd be like to live in Scotia, to live and work in Scotia. But not just as an employee of Pacific Lumber. What would it be like to live in Scotia as a member of the Simon Murphy family? What if you were living in the company town, but you were a son or a grandson or a granddaughter of Simon Murphy? Right, you might live and have friends and go to school and go to work and go to church, but everywhere you went, everybody knows you're a Murphy. Everywhere you go, people know that they are living under the benevolence of your family. You'd be you, but everywhere you were, you would represent the Murphy family. You'd be you, but everyone you met would be living in a town that your family owns. Don't miss the significance of what's happening when God the Son sends his disciples into the world and then God the Spirit comes to dwell in them. See, as Jesus' disciples, we are more than couriers. We are more than people who live our own lives and just deliver messages whenever we get an opportunity. We are God's children. We are God's household. We are indwelt by God the Spirit and sent into this world to be his embodied presence to a world that desperately needs him and that desperately does, longs for his welcome. We are the representatives of the ultimate owner and creator of the world, right? God owns everything. This is his world. And we are his hosts. We are his representatives. We, right, as, as the hymn reminds us, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that while the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. And I believe it's fundamentally important for you, for me, to not simply hear this, but for us to believe it, for it to shape 
the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we tell others about why we're here. The story regarding, the story you tell yourself about why you're here in Missoula matters. How you view yourself in this city, in, in, in this area, it changes things. How God wants you to view yourself changes things. And I'm afraid that too often as Christians, we view ourselves either as visitors, just trying to survive, or as permanent residents, trying to make our plot of land as comfortable as possible. But remember what God says specifically about our presence in this world, and consequently, specifically about your presence in Missoula. You are God's hosts. You are the embodiment of God, his spirit, God the spirit, not just his spirit, God the spirit dwells inside of you to be his presence in this place, to be his means of welcome, welcoming people into his family, into the kingdom of light. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. Do you see how striking that is? Remember John 1, right? The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. Jesus was the light, and Jesus now is looking at his disciples saying, okay, I know I'm the light, but now you are the light of the world because my spirit dwells in you. You are Christ's ambassadors, God's representatives sent to this city at this moment. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You, we are the temple of God here. The very household of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells within you? When you welcome people into your life, you are welcoming them into the presence of the very Spirit of God. Do not misunderstand the magnitude of what it means to be His, to be His children, to be His children sent to a place at a time in a moment. God is not simply welcoming through you, His God's welcome is manifest in you. When you're driving and someone's waiting across the street, God the Spirit is present behind the wheel. How might that person experience the welcome of God? When someone's standing next to you in the grocery store, they are standing in the physical presence of the manifestation of God the Spirit. How may they experience the welcome of God through you? When someone moves in next door, they are moving next door to the very presence of God in this earth. How might they experience his welcome? 
When a new coworker joins your team, they are collaborating on work in the very presence of the Spirit of God. Again, how may they experience God's welcome? Every time someone in your city comes, comes in contact with any of you, if you are a Christian, they are in the presence of someone who has been sent to their neighborhood, sent to their store, sent to their workplace to represent the one true God of the universe and to manifest his welcome in this city. It's true for me in Los Angeles something I need to remember every day as I sit in traffic, <laughs> the spirit of God present in between two different, four different cars. But it's one that in each corner of the globe, the Lord has sent his spirit and his people. When he told the disciples that, that the gospel was gonna spread to, to, to Jerusalem and to Samaria and to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, we're there. Right? From standing in Jerusalem, this is pretty much the ends of the earth. Right? This is almost as far as you can get. And God has sent his people, sent his family to this place for this purpose. And so I, I want to encourage you to think differently. There might be all sorts of things that brought you here. And, and those, those are the reasons you're here. Those are, those are great reasons to be here but behind them, underneath them, is the ultimate reason you're here. And I wanna encourage you to think differently about yourself as you go through your days, through your weeks. I wanna encourage you to increasingly not just see yourself through God's eyes, but see your presence here. See the purpose for which you are here through his eyes as well. Because this is who we are. This is why we're here. I don't know the specifics, but I know the ultimate. To manifest his presence, to be his welcome to a lonely, angry, confused world that is dying for lasting hope. What an overwhelming privilege. Let's pray. Lord God, what a gift to be here. What a gift to be your children. God, it's overwhelming to just be in your house, to be with your people, to be gathered together and to be reminded, Lord, of the immense love and privilege and gifts you have given us. Father, will you help us with clarity? Remember not only that we have been called your children, but that we have been sent sent by your sovereign working to the places that we inhabit. And not only sent, Lord, but empowered, indwelt with your spirit. What an incredible gift. We love you. We praise you for it. Period, give us wisdom and clarity and power as we strive to, one step at a time, live it out. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.